Let's pray as we come to the word this morning. Our gracious God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we approach your throne this morning in need. We just confess that navigating the challenges, the effects of sin in this world is difficult. And we also confess that thanks be to you, O God, we've not been left alone to navigate these challenges on our own. And so every Christian in this room says, thank you, Lord, for your spirit. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to see you restore that which is broken. We thank you for a grace that can be extended when we've failed. We thank you for a grace that strengthens us from not continually falling again and again and again. And so would you graciously speak to us in and through this sermon I pray that you would strengthen relationships across this church, and particularly this morning, we give our attention to marriages. And so meet with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Paul Tripp begins his book on marriage this way. I just didn't think it would be like this, Mary said. She looked completely exhausted and defeated, while Sam, on the other hand, just looked angry. He didn't want to be with me talking about his marriage to Mary. In fact, if truth be told, he didn't want to be married to Mary. He'd reached the point of finally being over it. Fifteen years. Fifteen years, and this is what I get. Mary refused to answer. She just sat there and sobbed. And Paul Tripp writes about this experience. As I looked at Sam and Mary, I knew it had not always been like this. I've sat with many couples as they were preparing for marriage and in the process of considering marriage. And yet I've come up against what has become a most frustrating experience for me. Frustrating because of unrealistic expectations that couples enter into marriage with. And perhaps one of those largest looming unrealistic expectations is that somehow your marriage will escape the brokenness of this world. It should not surprise you that your marriage on the regular needs daily grace in and out. And while this sermon is specifically geared to addressing marriages, the truths here do not discriminate. Unrealistic expectations are true for all of us, no matter our season of life. And so I just wonder this morning, how have unrealistic expectations made your relationships more challenging? 
Have you stopped to consider that some of the challenges that you have relationally are owing to, to expectations that you have that simply aren't realistic? God has seen fit to leave us in this fallen world to live and to love and to work because he intends to use the difficulties that we face to do something that couldn't have been accomplished in any other way. In his book, Sacred Marriage, Gary Thomas asks this question. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? And while that's a rhetorical question, the answer is, he did. He did design marriage for that greater purpose. Now, let's be clear. What that doesn't mean is that God is not interested in married couples being happy. Or he's, it's not that God isn't wanting married couples to pursue marital happiness. It's not that that's the wrong goal. It's that that's far too small of a goal within our marriages. Because God is committed to growing his children in holiness. That means he's committed to be at work day in and day out in our relationships, in our marriages. Both using the good and bad circumstances to change us. I just wonder, relational conflict hits. When was the last time that you stopped to think, God, I wonder how you're using this conflict to change me? And you say, wait, wait a minute, Justin. How in the world can you say that marriage is more about holiness than about happiness? Well, it's in large part owing to what we covered last week. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon as we talked about God's primary purpose for marriage. And we talked about there's a, there's a foundation for marriage and there is this primary purpose for marriage. And, God's, uh, and the word tells us that God's primary purpose for marriage is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter five, verse 32. And so if this relationship between husband and wife is meant to reflect the glory of a relationship between Christ and his church, Think about everything that has gone into that relationship between Christ and his church. Everything that Jesus did to secure his church, his bride, it was dominated not by mere happiness, but by holiness. Think about what the scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Speaking of Jesus, he who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the work that Jesus did to secure his bride was not about Jesus saying, what is it that's going to make me most happy? What is it that's going to be about uh, the work of bringing about happiness? No, he endured the cross because there was something greater than his happiness that was driving his actions. And so everything he did to secure his bride, it wasn't dominated by his happiness. It wasn't dominated by the church's happiness. It was rather dominated by his holiness. 
Think about the prayer Jesus prays in Matthew 26, verse 39. As he's in the garden, the cross is looming. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Happiness isn't driving this. Or even what we read last week about the holiness of the church. Husbands, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives. How? How should husbands love their wives? Just as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy. His holiness driving him to act for her holiness. So if marriage has a foundation that's rooted in creation and this primary purpose that's as glorious as this, then the question that should baffle all of us is why in the world then are marriages so difficult at times? Like why in the world is there so much conflict? If this was the design... As we mentioned last week, why does it seem to be that we often visit the battlefield and not the peach orchard gardens? And you say, Justin, wait, battlefield, my marriage is not that bad. Okay, the boxing ring. Some level of conflict. Why is it that marriages are lived there? How do we navigate the conflicts? that will happen in our marriages. And so before we jump into Ephesians chapter four, I just wanna remind you of three important truths that have to set the framework and the paradigm for how we view conflict in relationships, particularly for this sermon as applied in marriage. First, if we lose sight of what we talked about last week, Ephesians 5, 31 through 33, foundation and purpose of marriage, then none of these prescribed behaviors will make sense. You see, here's the thing. The tiny world of just you and your spouse can create an atmosphere that can seem suffocating. And if you want to get unstuck, if you want to, to find a way in order for your marriage to not be weighed down by difficulties, then let's throw open the window and let's breathe in repeatedly this glorious truth. God, this is for your glory. This is for your glory. God created your marriage and he wants you to thrive in your marriage. So make your primary purpose in your marriage his glory. That's the first thing. Second truth. The greatest help that you can contribute to the health of your marriage is to walk faithfully with your God. Marriages are corrected and fixed vertically 
before they're ever fixed and corrected horizontally. And so not that it's a one-to-one correlation, but it should not surprise you that your marriage is limping when your walk with the Lord is stagnant or inconsistent. Paul Tripp, again, in his book, says the difficulties in our marriage do not first come because we don't love one another enough, but rather because we don't love God enough. And then third, no matter the condition of your marriage, there is hope for you this morning. And I have prayed this week, God, would, would you help our church believe this? God is committed to using the difficult circumstances and the conflicts in your marriage to mold you to become what he has created you to be. And so let's just declare it this morning. God is more powerful than your struggles. God is more faithful than you and your spouse combined. And God is more willing to guide you and help you than you can fathom. And so the reason to continue through difficult days, it's not going to be found in your spouse. It's going to be found in your God. And so look unto him. Look unto him. And so if you're not there, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And so the question before us this morning is how then do we navigate challenges that unfold the difficult days in our marriages? How do we navigate these challenges? Well, naturally, we would open the Bible to all of the passages about marital conflict. The only problem is that there aren't passages about marital conflict. And so while the Bible doesn't say anything specifically to marital conflict, it says everything about how Christians handle conflict. Thus, this morning, we could have preached, I I could have preached this sermon from almost anywhere in the New Testament, speaking about relational difficulties and speaking about how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so God in his kindness has led us to Ephesians chapter 4. And so I want to be clear, Ephesians chapter 4 verses 25 through 32 is not originally aimed at marriages. It's aimed at Christians and their relationships with others. Which is why if you're not married, this text has everything to say to you about conflict. And it's also why, if you are married, that this, rela- uh, this passage has everything to say to you about conflict in your marriage. And so I just want to say, God's gracious provision for conflict in marriage and every other relationship is found in what it looks like to live as an obedient Christ follower. Here's the thing, you don't need certain marriage books to address what the Bible has said, this is what it looks like for Christians to live faithfully in relationships with others. Marriage books are helpful, 
but they're not necessary. Because what the Bible holds out for Christians in terms of navigating conflict in relationships, married couples are meant to apply to their marriages. That's what, that's what the back half of the letter of Ephesians makes clear to the original audience as well as to us, the modern audience. And so if we understand that the back half of Ephesians is about imperatives, what it is that we ought to be doing, commands, the first half of Ephesians is about indicatives, statements about who Christ is and what Christ has done. And the ordering of those things matter. And so we begin by saying, this is who Christ is. This is what Christ has done. And for three chapters, Paul has labored to say, Christ is the one who unites all things to himself. And those that have been united to Christ are united to one another. And in light of that, how then ought we respond? How then ought we live So the life that's united to Christ and his people, that's one. So the aim this morning isn't to merely say, okay, let's just tell me what I need to do. The aim this morning is not merely to keep a list, but it's to believe what Christ has done to be sufficient, to then give you the empowering of his Holy Spirit to then help you do what he commands you to do. Here's the beautiful thing. The standard that God requires is so unbelievably high. And yet at every turn, he provides. He provides for everything that he requires. And the letter of Ephesians is a reminder of that. And so the life that's marked by the virtues that we'll see in our passage this morning is a life that has first been accepted before God because of Jesus. It's not, I'm going to keep these lists, I'm going to try to do these things so that I can earn or merit acceptance from God. And so this means that if you're not a Christ follower this morning, meaning you've not turned from your sin and trusted in the work of Jesus as your only hope to be forgiven and accepted by God, then your greatest need this morning is not merely how to tweak a horizontal relationship, but how to fix a broken vertical relationship. And Paul makes it clear in verse 25 that this is not a mere treaty on marriage, but on church unity. And so again, primary application is the church. And then after we think about the primary application of the church and how this is to inform our relationships with other Christians, then we can think about secondary applications. And so this sermon is largely a sermon based on a secondary application of Ephesians chapter 4. And so let's consider this morning several of God's gracious provisions for conflict specifically focusing on our marriages. The first one, verse 25, is truthful speech. The first grace, truthful speech. Listen again to what Alex read earlier. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. 
God's word is abundantly clear. We saw this a few weeks ago as we covered the Ten Commandments and this idea of not bearing false witness, not lying. And God's word helps us. His followers are to put off falsehood. And and other passages throughout the Bible help us capture God's perspective on such behavior. It just the Proverbs are overflowing with examples. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 21, 6. The getting of treasures by a, lie, a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. And so it's an abomination to the Lord, and it's a snare of death for us to be marked by and giving into and living lives in which we are not being truthful. And God's word says, put aside falsehood. And in its place, we are to put on truthful speech that's marked with integrity, that's marked with honesty. In fact, truthful, truthful speech is one of the ordinary means of grace that God has given to help his church grow up into Christ's likeness. Ephesians chapter 4, look up to verse 15. But speaking, who's speaking? The church, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And so let's just ask at the outset, are you truthful in your speech to your spouse? In what areas are you tempted to lie in your marriage? Maybe another question that is a better question is what areas of your marriage are built on a mirage of truthfulness. The applications here, I think, could extend generally into two areas. The first one would just be stop lying. Right? Uh, just, you get asked a question, just don't lie. Speak the truth. Don't say one thing while knowing that that one thing isn't true. And the better diagnostic question isn't merely, am I a liar? But it's, what am I trying to preserve in my lies? But I think another application here in terms of putting off falsehood and speaking the truth is withholding the truth. And I, I believe that a faithful application to this text will extend into confession. Laying aside falsehood also calls us not to hide the truth, but to be honest about the truth. Laying aside falsehood calls us to lower the mask of I'm okay. And calls us to honestly confess the reality of our condition to others. And I've, I've followed the, the threads of this in my own life. I've had conversations with friends and 
opportunities to counsel. And there are so many ways that this can masquerade. Some of us may allow laziness in conversation to masquerade as fatigue. And so I'm, I'm not going to confess because I'm tired. When really what's at the end of the day is just, or what's at the end of that reason is pure laziness. Like I, I would rather settle for what seems to be peace in the relationship and yet I know all the while that unless we clear the air, there can't be peace in the relationship. But I don't want to, man, it's late. I don't want to get into this tonight. And so I'm just going to settle for peace all the while knowing that peace is not to be had. Some of us struggle with selfishness that's disguised as inability. Your, I don't know how to have the conversation really is, I'm just not interested enough to have the conversation. And some of us, our pride keeps us from saying anything. Because if I have the conversation, and if I come clean, then maybe I don't look as godly as I would hope. And so in what ways is the conflict in your marriage driven by a lack of transparency and confession? Change doesn't take place in a marriage that doesn't begin with confession. Both confession to God as well as to other Christians. And certainly there's wisdom on what all and how often confession should mark our relationships in marriage. But the idea is how do we put off falsehood? How is it that, that my speech is marked by truthfulness? And so while it doesn't seem like much, every time I tell you I'm okay when I'm really not okay, I'm hurting us. And the reason this is often missed is because confession calls each of us to say that one of the greatest marital problems that exist, exists inside me, not outside of me. If you're not a Christian this morning, I don't know how in the world you do this on the regular. I don't know how you get into a relationship and seek to put off falsehood and be honest and and to not lie and to, and, and to confess things. Because the shame and the guilt of who we really are is terrifying and it's heavy. But if you're a Christian this morning, I just want to remind you that the message of your debt and guilt and shame has been paid. That's the message of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ took your shame, He took your guilt. He took it to the cross. He paid for it with his life. He rose from the dead to show that it was effective. And so now guilt and shame shouldn't keep you from being truthful with your spouse. You are free to be honest because there's nothing that you can say to them that would be able to paint a clearer picture of just how broken and bad you really are that Jesus hasn't already addressed. I wonder if we believe that. 
Truthful speech and confession should be seen as a wonderful gift that every marriage needs. And it should be seen as a liberating, freeing conversation. Like we should view confession, truthfulness, truthful speech, we should view these things not as a moment of personal loss, but an opportunity for personal and relational gain. And so Christian brothers and sisters, you have been set free from having to live as though difficulties don't exist. You are free from having to live as though you're always okay. You can confess your sin because as 1 John 1, 9 tells us, when we do, he is faithful and just to forgive. Does truthful speech mark your marriage? What areas are you quick to lie? What areas are you slow to confess? I would encourage you to have these conversations at some point within your marriage. That's the first grace. Second grace that we see in our passage today is found in verse 26. So if we have truthful speech, verse 25... Verse 26, we have expiring anger. Expiring anger. Anger with an expiration date. Listen to God's word. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It would, it would be easy to misread this verse. It, it would be easy to misread this and perhaps walk away and say, okay, wait a minute. Paul's telling me to never be angry. Paul's commanding me to stop being angry or that somehow anger is sin. And let's be clear, some of you should stop being angry because your anger is sinful. Paul's not saying all anger is sinful. In fact, the Bible has a category. Jesus modeled the category of what it looks like to be angered at sin and injustice. You should be angered when sin devastates your marriage. But you should be angry at the right object. John prayed this earlier. The majority of our anger burns at the mistreatment of our honor, of our pride, of our wants, of our rights. And even in this verse, verse 26, Paul is quoting an Old Testament passage, Psalm chapter 4, verse 4 where after being accused of sin that he didn't do, the psalmist encourages others not to sin whenever they're angry. So instead of revenge, be silent and trust the Lord. In the same way, Paul says, don't sin in anger. And in order to keep anger from degenerating into sin, there's a time limit upon it. I wonder... Has anger taken up residence in your marriage longer than this? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Are you committed to going to sleep when the offense is still there?
And let's just be clear, Paul doesn't say the issue needs to be settled before the sun goes down. Paul says the offense has to be removed before the sun goes down. We've had plenty of conversations where the sun is going down. And both anger and issue are still there. And saying, for us to work through this issue, we may watch the sun come up. <laughs> In order to not do that, let's at least work to ensure that the offense is removed. Work at removing the offense, not settling the issue before the sun goes down. Because if we become okay with anger lingering and loitering, it will take up residence. And that is a disastrous house guest. Some of your marital challenges today may stem from the fact that there has been a hardness of heart that has set in because you have not been obedient to deal with offenses sooner rather than later. If you sin in your anger and you're slow to address the anger in your heart through repentance and reconciliation, Paul tells us you are giving the enemy a foothold, an opportunity. It should be the Christian's desire to not give the, the devil any opportunity to do any of his work in our lives. And so as we think then about anger and what our anger looks like, our anger should reflect the character of God's anger. It should reflect the character of God's anger in what angers us. It should reflect the character of God's anger in how quickly we are angered. It should reflect God's character in how long anger lasts. Just think about God's word, Psalm 30 verse 5. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is, a, is for a lifetime. Think about Exodus 34, 6. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. If you're a Christian in here this morning, it ought to thrill your soul that your God is slow to anger with you. And it ought should be dumbfounding to you that we can be so quick to be angered. His anger is never sinful. Does sin characterize your anger? Are you angered over the things that rob God of his glory? Do you biblically handle anger in the prescribed way? Or do you just avoid it? And let's just be clear. It's not enough this morning to say, hey, hey, guess what? I'm not hot-headed I'm not a short-fused, angry kind of person. That's fine. But if you still seethe silently in your anger, that doesn't bring honor to your God. If you don't deal with your anger, but rather let everyone around you feel the wrath of your anger, that doesn't bring glory to your God. If you just try to minimize your anger, not dealing with it, bottling it up until it explodes, that does not honor your God. 
we can't minimize what God says we must address. And again, if you're not a Christian this morning, knowing that God has a righteous anger that he pours out onto sin and sinners because of unbelief in him, I pray that that would cause your soul to tremble this morning. Unlike your anger, he's perfectly righteous in his. And I hope you would come to know just how momentary his anger can be and how everlasting his favor is upon those who will turn from their sin and trust in the finished work of Jesus in order to be forgiven and to be accepted before God. Believe in his life and his death and his resurrection. Third grace that we see, verse 29, edifying speech. Edifying speech. There's a word here in verse 28 for those of you who are struggling in your marriage because your spouse is stealing from you. And so if you are stealing from your spouse, stop on the basis of verse 28. That's all I got. Verse 29, edifying speech. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. In God's design for marriage, there is need for a lot of conversation. There's a need for a lot of conversation. There's also need for a lot of variety of conversation. Every conversation doesn't have to look the same, and it shouldn't. Every conversation doesn't need to be an in-depth, heavy spiritual conversation. Every conversation doesn't need to be a small talk kind of conversation. It doesn't need to be information exchange conversation. It doesn't need to be value sharing conversations. It doesn't need to be prayers. It doesn't need to be encouragements. It doesn't need to be uh, correction. It doesn't need to only be confession. And those are just naming a few, but marriage requires all of those conversations. And Ephesians 4.29 then says, hey, in the midst of the variety and the diversity and the creativity of all of the conversations that should flourish in a marriage, there are certain things that should not happen in our conversations with one another. Ephesians 4.29 says, it is not okay for you to say whatever you want to say, however you want to say it, whenever you want to say it. And so you can't, under the guise of being honest, be sinful in your conversation. Nothing that you should say should be harmful or derogatory. Your conversation with your spouse shouldn't be marked by vulgarity. It shouldn't be abusive language. It shouldn't be slanderous. It shouldn't be filled with lies and gossip. It shouldn't be putting them down. It shouldn't be marked by angry outbursts. It, it, perhaps it even shouldn't be marked by sinful sarcasm. Ephesians 4.29 reminds us that our words carry the potential to either build people up or tear them down. 
And Paul says, put off every word. Literally, put off every word that is destructive or leads us down a a destructive path. And sadly, the grace-empowered use of biblical encouragement, grace-empowered biblical encouragement, sadly, that's not as well used, as often used in marriages as flesh-empowered criticisms. Grace-empowered encouragement, flesh-empowered criticism. Which of those marks your conversations more with your spouse? Do you find yourself being an encourager of the grace that is, a, is, that is on display in the life of your spouse? And, and I want to be clear, God honoring critique in marriage can be such a means of grace when it's done correctly. But the flavor of our speech in the majority of our conversations in our marriage should be dominated by gratitude for grace as opposed to discouragement because of the need to constantly critique. Biblical encouragement involves actively looking for the areas that God is at work in your spouse and drawing attention to his grace at work there. Man, I I just pray, Lord, would you fill this church with marriages that are overflowing with biblical, godly encouragement. Not that we're scared to speak words of critique, but where those words of critique would be able to land effectively because we are consistently praising you for the way you're at work in the lives of our spouse. This kind of drawing attention to God's grace at work in the life of your spouse brings glory to God. It also brings hope to your spouse. And just think about this. I mean, I have had moments and I've heard from people just, well, if I, if I give an encouragement to my spouse in this area, then they may think that they've already arrived and they're nowhere close. And so you won't fan into flame an encouragement because you're afraid that that encouragement is gonna lead them to forget about growing in that area again? The writer of Hebrews calls us, encourage one another. And so just even think about this. Can your spouse readily recall encouragements that you've given this past weekend? What about the last week? Would there be encouragements that your spouse could readily recall? What about criticisms and critique? Have you given any encouragements recently? Uh, And here's the thing. We all know what it's like to be on the receiving end of an encouragement that genuinely builds you up. And so let's be faithful to give that to one another as well. But I also think Ephesians 4.29 gives space for biblical correction. And you say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that the opposite of encouragement? I don't think so. 
In fact, it seems that the biblical writers regularly seek to build up their audiences by graciously offering correction. And so perhaps some of the challenges that you're facing in your marriage is stemming from an inability from one or both parties to give godly critique and correction and or to receive godly critique and correction. And one of the best ways to foster this within your marriage is not to bring out your list of corrections during an argument. That's actually the worst time to do it. In our marriage over the years, we've had to have this conversation. And this is how, this is how we've begun it. If you knew that I wouldn't tr try to justify away or defend my behaviors, what's one area that you would encourage me to give attention to? And so here's the thing. We ought to foster in our marriages not just the ability to give godly correction. We should foster opportunities where we're inviting it. If one of the sharpest tools that the Lord has in his tool belt to make you more and more like Christ is your spouse, why in the world would you not gladly welcome their perspective to help you see areas in which you need to grow? Not every instance of correction needs to be a personal offense that you take. And so create spaces where correction can be given in an environment that's not going to turn argumentative or volatile. One author noted that the difference between a spiritually blind man and a physically blind man is that the physically blind man knows he's blind. Our hearts are extremely deceitful. So much so that you can go the majority of your marriage and think, the really big issue in my marriage is not me. It's them. And praise be to God, he has given you a spouse to regularly hold up a mirror to just remind you, yeah, you are a big problem too. Of all relationships, your spouse is for you. And so lean into this kind of edifying speech. That brings us to our fourth grace, last one. Genuine forgiveness. Genuine forgiveness. Also known as animosity-less forgiveness. We see this in verses 30 through 32. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. 
Verse 30 is sort of this mid-thought summary of just your behaviors in your relationship this morning in your marriage should be lived in a way that doesn't distress or grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is grieved when God's people continue in their sin. And when God's people continue in their sin, that will always divide and destroy the unity in the body and in marriages. And so Paul reminds these believers that God has stamped his guarantee to protect them and to keep them until the day of redemption through his Holy Spirit. And that ought to generate a level of gratitude And that ought to compel us then to say, how then do I honor the one who has been so faithful to secure me and who will be faithful to bring me home? And then this chapter concludes with the call to put off bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. And I love the movement of verse 31. It goes from inward attitude to outward actions. And Paul is saying that it's not just enough to say, "Ah, I'm okay because I'm not slandering. Well, is bitterness in your heart. And it's not just enough to say, well, I'm not wrathful, but I do clamor and I do grumble. Paul says, don't only put off the angry behaviors, put off the... uh, Put off even those inward attitudes that are not honoring. And in their place, put on kindness. The word is used there to to remind us of, of how Jesus has been gracious and merciful towards sinners. Put on kindness. Be tender hearted. Go back and read Ephesians, or flip forward and read, read Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, you are to be this way. Read how Christ is with his church. And one of the adjectives that you'll walk away with is thinking he is tender with her. He is tender with us. And so what is it that's calling us? What is it that, what's the North Star that's helping us navigate marital conflict and conflict in all relationships? It's how has God treated you? And so we are tenderhearted, we are kind, we forgive because that's how we have been treated by God in and through Jesus Christ. And so church, live a life of response that's worthy of that calling. You've been given much grace and much love and much forgiveness. Who then are you to not give it to others? Forgiveness is one of the most essential ingredients to a God-honoring marriage. It's difficult, it's costly, and yet the return is always much greater than the cost. Biblical paradigm is that we will harvest what we are planting. I wonder how much malice and wrath, and bitterness, and anger, and slander we've been planting in our marriages. And if we have been, it should not surprise us of the devastating fallout 
that we're harvesting. And the good news of God's grace is that though you may have walked in this door having planted a brand new row on the ride to this service, you can walk out planting a different seed and watching this faithful God grow a different harvest. That's the hope. And here's the thing, apart from Christ, there is no hope because you can't do that. You can't give a love and a forgiveness and a kindness that you have not first received. And so your greatest need this morning, if you're not a Christian, is not merely to tweak a horizontal relationship with a spouse or with a friend or with a coworker, but to address the severed relationship vertically with your God. Because of your sin, you are unable to do what you were created to do. And in great kindness and grace, God has done for you what you cannot do. And he has sent Christ, and Christ has done for you what you could never do, rightly upholding and honoring God at every turn. And you say, that sounds good, but that's only half the story because, man, I need his righteousness, but I've also got sin in my account. And because of the work of Jesus, sinless life, death on the cross as a substitute, bodily resurrection on the third day, your sins can be wiped clean. And so now you, can, you have the potential to stand before God as one who is perfectly righteous as Christ was, perfectly forgiven as one who has not sinned, and that can be yours. And you can know the faithful love of the better true bridegroom if you will come to the end of yourself and trust in the work of Jesus alone. We would plead with you this morning, if you're not a Christian, come there. Run there. Tim Keller said, forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one who's granting the forgiveness. When Jesus was being mocked and tortured, he didn't retaliate. He could have, but he chose not to because he was absorbing the cost. And without forgiveness, we have no relationship. And without relationship, we will not have meaning in life for God created us to live in relationship with him. Forgiveness is vital for that relationship and forgiveness is vital for our marriages as well. C.S. Lewis put it well when he said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. And so what's the bottom line hope for marriage? A godly grand design that's lived out in the confines of a sinful conflict-ravaged world. The bottom line hope is grace. It's grace. Because grace guarantees you that in the difficult days, you will never be alone. And grace guarantees you and assures you that when you've blown it, forgiveness can cover your sin. Grace means that there's a strength when you're weak. It assures you that there's wisdom when you don't know what to do. Grace gives you hope when no hope seems present. Grace enables you to move forward when you want to retreat. And between now and glory, all of marriage is marked by the remaining effects of sin. And your neediness is a good place to be. In fact, God uses your marriage to draw you to the end of yourself so that you might put your ultimate hope and trust in him. And friends, marriage is a gift. 
and it takes work. And both of those statements are true. They're true for his glory and for our good. Let's pray.